1: As you may have heard, renewed and escalating conflicts have arisen in Burma following a reported attack on August 25 by Rohingya insurgents against members of the nation's police force and military. Since then, government forces have reportedly targeted Rohingya Muslims across a number of villages in the northern part of Rakhine State, an area to the country's west. As well as no doubt inflicting casualties and tearing apart communities, the conflict has led to hundreds of thousands of predominantly Rohingya Muslims fleeing to nearby Bangladesh. To tell us more and to provide an update update on the situation over there. We have Phil Robertson, Deputy Director of the Asia Division at Human Rights Watch joining us today on the line. Thanks so much for joining us today Phil. Sure, happy to speak here. And so reports are suggesting that it was this confrontation in late August that led to this latest crackdown against Rohingya Muslims in Bangladesh. What were the circumstances around that clash?
2: Well, this is a uh, small insurgent group that first appeared in October. Uh, it's called the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army. And it attacked between 25 to 30 uh, police posts uh, early on the morning of August 25th. Uh, and uh, the reaction we're seeing now uh, is the over-the-top reaction, the really scorched dirt tactics from the Burma Army and police literally driving Rohingya out of the out of that state. So far, there's been about 290,000 people who have been forced into Bangladesh in the last two weeks. And uh, we expect that number to rise.
0: And I mean, it's just heartbreaking scenes uh, that we're seeing on our news here. But I understand over the weekend that the insurgent group has called a month-long truce. What does that mean?
2: I'm not sure it's going to mean very much on the ground, to be honest. I don't think that this is going to cause the Burma Army to uh, pause at all. I mean, the senior uh, general, Min Aung Laing, uh, the head of the Burma Army, said that they were now on to finishing unfinished business, which he said should have happened after World War II, when there was uh, a previous bout of insurgency in uh, that area, which uh, the, the Army responded to. So... It's clearly moving uh, towards ethnic cleansing. We think that uh, the government is going to continue to push uh, until they have either uh, uh, sent all the Rohingya out of that uh, part of the northern Rakhine state or been able to uh, herd people into some sort of large uh, IDP camp.
1: And so, as you alluded to, Phil, this isn't the first time that the Rohingya have been targeted in Burma. There's a, there's a long history um, of, um, I guess, government forces and, and military attempting to wipe them from the country. But I mean, there's been a number of, I guess, similar types of situations in recent times. Back in October, there was an insurgent strike uh, in Burma. But how does this current uh, crisis compare, I guess, to what we've seen in the country previously? Is this particularly severe, what we're seeing now?
2: Well, compared to recent times, uh, it is quite severe. I mean, certainly much more severe than what we saw in October. Uh, and that, those abuses were bad enough that the U.N. Human Rights Council established what they're calling a fact-finding mission, which actually includes an Australian lawyer, Chris Sadati, as one of the three commissioners. The government of Burma has said that they're not going to let that commission uh, enter Burma or to work uh there, so I think that they're going to be heading to Bangladesh pretty soon to do what many others are doing, which is interviewing refugees as they're coming across the border with gunshot wounds and shrapnel wounds and suffering from days on the run without much food or or anything else. Uh, but I'll, I, we saw in 2012 that there was ethnic cleansing and uh, crimes against humanity committed against the Rohingya. Uh, these were attacks by the army and the police, also. uh, accompanied by Rohingya, I mean, simuli, ethnic Buddhist Rakhine mobs who uh, were sort of serving as auxiliaries, and we're seeing the same sort of pattern again. Uh, There's also been, in in previous times, back in 1991 and before that, in 1978, periods where there was, again, these kind of pogroms that just pushed out uh, hundreds of thousands of Rohingya. So clearly these people have suffered a great deal. Uh, there now is a major humanitarian crisis, I would say actually a catastrophe, developing on the Burma-Bangladesh border, where the UN humanitarian agencies and international NGOs just can't keep up with the demands of uh, the, these people for shelter, for food and for basic medical services.
0: Well, Bangladesh itself is in crisis, I mean, with the worst flooding in, in decades as well. So, is that, is that also complicating the response to support the refugees?
2: Absolutely, and it's it's committing, It's committing. also contributing to resentment against the refugees by ordinary Bangladeshis who, you know, quite rightly feel that their government should be helping them. Uh, so I think that this is why the international community really has to step up. Uh, Australia and other uh, international donors have to be uh, incredibly generous at this point to support UN agencies to go in there and try to uh, help with this uh, mass of refugees, which... As I said, it's growing day by day. I mean, 290,000 was the estimate Uh, over the weekend. I expect we'll see that rise by another 10 or 20,000 by the end of today.
1: And in these types of conflicts, um, as I'm sure you're you're all too aware, working for an organisation such as Human Rights Watch, it can be very difficult difficult to glean uh, comprehensive information and a a true picture of I guess exactly what's happening and I've read reports that Burma's not allowing journalists um, into the I guess the area most affected by conflict saying it's too dangerous and I've also read some reports of um, claims of fake news and even fake images surfacing that suggest that the Rohingya are burning their own homes. What's the situation over there with with journalists access to what's happening there and, and how I guess comprehensive picture do we have of What's going on?
2: Well, there's a couple different things here. I mean, first of all, uh, humanitarian agencies and NGOs that have been working in the region uh, now don't have travel authorizations. They're really sort of locked down. Aung San Suu Kyi made some incredibly irresponsible statements saying that uh, humanitarian agencies and NGOs might be behind what she called terrorist activities. And that has then sort of put a target on the back of every humanitarian working in the state. Uh, so those ears are not available. Uh, of course, they're not letting human rights monitors like Human Rights Watch in. But journalists, there's been uh, one or two dog-and-pony shows uh, where journalists have been taken around and being told the same thing, that, like, you know, it's all Rohingya burning down their houses. Uh, but that just backfired over the weekend uh, on the Burma government because... Uh, a number of journalists, international journalists, uh, were able to sort of break away from their minders and document uh, a Rakhine men coming out of a village, you know, armed with uh, spears, having just set the Rohingya village, which is abandoned, on fire. And uh, a couple of them admitting that, yeah, it was the police behind it. They were uh, encouraging them to do it. And these Rakhines were going in looting places and then burning things so that people couldn't come back. So. There's a lot of fake news. I mean, there's uh, images of uh, so-called jihadis, which, you know, they had women and men there. It looked like the women had, like, uh, some sort of tablecloth uh, tied around their head, Uh, really very crude, uh, and not convincing anybody except Burmese uh, public opinion, which is already very anti Rohingya to start with.
0: Phil Robinson is with us. He's Deputy Asia Director at Human Rights Watch, and we're speaking about the humanitarian crisis right now um, on the Bangladeshi-Burma border with the Rohingya people fleeing in their tens of thousands. And, I mean, there were great hopes for for Burma uh, under Aung San Suu Kyi. I mean, what... I think a lot of people are confused what to think and uh, whether we should have hopes that, that the Rohingya will fare better with Aung San Suu Kyi in, um, in the government there. What, what are your thoughts, Phil?
2: Well, unfortunately, uh, they have not fared better. Uh, I, in fact, I think she's part of the problem as far as the Rohingya goes. Uh, she's lined up very closely with the Burma military. Uh, she has been saying that, you know, it's terrorists spreading fake news. I mean, she has really been a huge disappointment. And now we've had at least three or four of her fellow Nobel laureates uh, uh, attacking her or or at least pleading with her by public letter to to turn the situation around and try to get the Army to show some restraint. Uh, You know, she has just responded with silence. So, uh, you know, everybody keeps saying, well, geez, if she would just stand up and use her uh, moral authority, I think that so far, um, you know, she's decided that, Politically, it's not a good idea for her because uh, the Rohingya are not popular, or, or you know, worse that she agrees with the narrative that these people are not uh, citizens of Burma and uh, they deserve to be driven out. It's really very concerning. Uh, I think that um, you know her international reputation is taking a, a huge beating, and um, it, it's all her fault that it is. It really is uh, no one else's except her own uh, that you know, she is being now seen as sort of reneging on a deal of standing up for human rights and democracy in Burma.
1: And there must be incredible, rondo's those uh, refugee camps that have been sort of set up or that are very much bursting at the seams in, in Bangladesh. And of course, you know, a lot of concerns for the Rohingya who are still in Burma. Have you um, noticed any kind of significant international assistance? Is there hope that there will be an, an international kind of movement to, to help these people who are fleeing currently?
2: Well the UN has put out their appeals. I mean, let's be clear that we're not really talking almost about refugee camps. We're talking about people living by the side of the road. I mean, we're people talking about people living under tarps uh, in monsoon rains uh, in southern Bangladesh. So, by the UN to uh, get fully funded for this to uh, scale up, the Bangladesh government has its earlier policy and it's becoming much more conducive to allowing people across and allow them to receive assistance, which is which is good news. But the, the the human misery there is very high, and it's going to take a number of weeks or months before people are actually in a situation where they're actually in something that might be called a camp. Uh, and I think the people are going to die in the course of this. I think there's uh, very serious problems with uh, with uh, medical uh, disease outbreaks, particularly waterborne illnesses, respiratory illnesses, uh, things that um, uh, you know this mass of people. Uh, you know, without adequate sanitation, without adequate food, without ad- adequate anything, uh, this is what's this is naturally what's going to occur. And I think the humanitarians are rushing as fast as they can, but they need more support and more. That's where Australians have to step up. I think it's also important that um, you know it's, that the fact-finding mission that the Human Rights Council appointed for its work. You know, be able to go in and interview these people in Bangladesh, but also go into Burma. I mean, it, it's actually shameful. That the government of Burma is now saying they're not going to cooperate with this mission. You know, this puts them in the uh, same basket of nations as, like, North Korea, Syria, Burundi, and others who systematically refuse cooperation with uh, the Human Rights Council. So it's almost like Burma is heading back to its uh, basket based human rights pariah status that it had for years under the military governments.
0: No, it's a really um, yeah, heartbreaking situation and uh, people should dig in and support those agencies that are working in that area. And thank you so much, Phil, for us here on Triple R and, and all the best with your work with Human Rights Watch.
1: Thank you so much. And if you weren't aware, Melbourne's Taipan Tiger Girls is the project of Ollie Olsen, Matt Watson and Linda McKinney. They've been playing their particular brand of improvised drone kind of industrial music for some years now all around Melbourne and are set to appear tonight at the Northcote Social Club's Winded Up event, one of the great free shows they put on each week, each Monday night down there at the Social Club. And to chat more about it, we've got Taipan Tiger Girls drummer Matt Watson here in the studio. How are you doing? Hi, Matt. Um, h- hello. Good
3: morning to you both. I'm very well, thank you.
1: Good, you. Ha- good to have you back at Triple R. Yeah, thanks for having me back. <laughs> and um, I saw on your uh, Facebook page that um, I mean, any type and Tiger Girl show always has an element of, I guess, improvisation and the unexpected. Mm. But you've got something particularly special. Uh, maybe a few members, more members. Yeah.
3: Tonight. So obviously, yeah. No, normally, the as as you said, um, the, the band's made up of myself, uh, Ollie Olsen and and Lisa McKinney, uh, guitarist Lisa McKinney. Um, Tonight we're we're going to be um, I guess premiering an expanded ensemble um, into a five piece. So most people know us as a, as a trio of guitar, electronics, and drums. Um, uh, yeah, so tonight will expand to include uh, two other members: um, a, a guitarist and a bass player, both of whom are well-established um, artists, composers, and you know noise artists in their own right. So we're we're very lucky to have both of those. Apart, and you'll notice I haven't mentioned their names. I was going to say right? you no. haven't mentioned no. them. You're, You're going to leave down us down hanging. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah we're, we're, we're getting there. So, um, yeah, we're wrapped to have uh, Bonnie Mercer, um, who will be no stranger to Triple R listeners. Bonnie's been around doing a lot of things for a very long time. Um, she's a founding member of Grey Detourers, who put out some pretty great uh, noise records many years ago. Um, uh, currently playing with a, a host, sw- swag of great great bands, but also um, she has a duo with Lisa from Taipan Thai Girls as well, uh, called Hospital Pass. Um, they both played with Cable Tires some weeks back at their album launch and kind of blew the roof off the curtain. So, mm. uh, yeah, it's going to be amazing to work with Bonnie um, and also Cat Hope. So Cat is, is a, um, a, a very well-established, well-known and well-respected um, uh, composer, noise artist, um, has travelled extensively, studied extensi- extensively. She's the uh, Professor of Music at Monash Monash Music as a head of the music department out there um, with a long history of dealing with graphic scores and she's just she's uh, an absolute powerhouse so so the group will expand um, yeah to expand, expand to include b- both of those artists so yeah we're wrapped to have both of them on so tonight and it, the, the project itself will take a different shape tonight um, by virtue of having two extra mm. members.
1: So. And <laughs> do you know, I mean, I know a lot of the, the stuff you do with Taipan Tiger mm. Girls is kind of improvised. Do you, do you have a sense of what shape it, it will take tonight or do you no. just kind of like turn on the mics, turn on all your equipment and just go for it?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's never, we've never really talked about it. Um, well, we never, we've never, the, the, the project started with the idea that it would not be talked about um, it was purely improvised. It was based on the the you know the, the summation of the the members that were going to be a part of it. So, um, you know, Oli obviously has a long history of curating some pretty interesting bands and musical projects and whatnot. So, um, yeah, it's obviously always been driven by by him and his his vision. So he has a very like lovely way of putting groups of people together um, based on. Um, you know, primarily based on, on uh, I guess working with, with artists with sensitive ears, you know, people that, that want to do interesting things that are good people that, yeah, that he finds a way to kind of merge, yeah, different personalities together. So mm. I'd never met Lisa until... there was interesting you played Motion from the first record. Now, I'd never met Lisa until the night that she came in to put guitar down on recordings that Ollie and I had already begun. Um. And so that's, I think that's just the, the beauty of, of this project. So tonight, yeah, to answer your question without kind of going down the rabbit hole there, <laughs> um, yeah, we, 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 who knows what's going to happen.
1: Mm. Yeah. yeah, It's amazing that, that you get someone in on the, the day or the night that you're recording because, I mean, I guess the traditional pr- approach of bands is to rehearse, 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 over and over again to the point where you know exactly what I guess you, you want to put down in the studio ideally yeah. and then and then enter it with that in mind whereas your approach is I guess deliberately very much the opposite
3: yeah I mean the the, the reason that Taipan Tiger Girls exists is really in uh, as a response to that way of working like we're not we're not really – we don't make noise – we don't make the kind of music we make because we can't write songs or because we – it's just that our interest lies um, in um, in different areas, maybe more more generalised kind of like we're interested in, in sound and the way that sound and, and rhythm can kind of connect with people. Um, I guess like language can, can confuse things at times and, you know, there's a lot of people that m- write a lot of beautiful songs using – the human voice to, to connect. It's we this is we choose something different. Um, uh, not about you know Western scale or, or um, you know uh, accepted forms of you know, delivery yeah. or your know, modes of delivery. Mm. Do you think people think that. that
0: you do it because you can't write songs? Oh, I, I, I,
3: <laughs> look, I think that's a pretty, pretty <laughs> like, uh, it's probably not an uncommon response yeah. to someone that would hear what we do and, and not like it.
0: Yeah. You know, not understand, not, not understand you,
3: the maybe the history of, of um, like the lineage, like where it comes from, why it exists. Mm. So, do you
0: think and, it suits unconventional venues as well? Like, I, I mean, I've seen sort of, you know, noise art performances in quite you know not mm. in in a pub or in mm. a in a venue, but elsewhere. Do you think it uh, suits that? Side? Oh, of
3: course, yeah. I mean, I think that it. Um, I think that's probably where it's. It, it it always wants to sit. It's always like looking for something else. I mean, we, we generally play. I guess we're in a lucky position where we we still find ourselves working and playing with. Um, with, you know, in, in more traditional kind of rock venues with other rock bands and punk bands and, you know, arty indie bands, like you name it. We, we have that kind of crossover, the ability to cross over. And I guess to, with tonight's bill, it's a, it's evidence of that, again, that we're able to be on kind of a crossover bill with a kind of younger, you know, techno artists, like closing the night. Mm-hmm. And that was part of the reason we put tonight together as well, was to work out how to engage across... Yeah, not not be so kind of closed off that we're you know we're we're a, a noise group that is just working within the realms of say the like you know those I'm just trying to think how to say it. you know the realms of like exclusivity. It's mm-hmm. about being very inclusive. So um, so yes, we can play traditional venues, but we would we also love to do non traditional.
1: <laughs> venues as well. As, as a punter, I'm always really kind of um, nicely surprised when I head along to, to a gig and I might mm. be going for, you know, the headliner potentially, but I kind of exposed to a whole bunch of bands I didn't know existed or wasn't mm. really that familiar with them and that they were very different to to the band on the night. I think it actually works quite well that you kind of can mash some different genres together, see some bands that are coming from slightly different places and mm. put them all in one room together.
3: Mm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, uh, th- my most favourite nights are always the nights with a d- diverse bill, like a d- diverse billing. Um, and I guess that comes down to like the, you know, the the booker or the person kind of putting that night together, like how they choose to curate that night of, of entertainment or that yeah. night of art or whatever it is. It's like you go and see visual art, you don't just want to see... Like it's beautiful when you get to experience so many different, diverse kind of um, modes and and um, and deliveries.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and one of those shows of yours that I'm kicking myself for not getting along to um, was your gig as part of Leaps and Bounds Festival oh, yeah. this year with yeah. live painting mm. happening at the time. How did that all go? And is the painting displayed somewhere? Or, um, or? The paintings. Well,
3: firstly, the show was was uh, went well. <laughs> it was it was really well <laughs> attended. And I think um, we, we hadn't played for some time. So um, I was... I know personally I was like, well, you know... And I think like probably most uh, most musicians would feel the same. Like you'd be like, well, I don't know if anyone's going to come tonight. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> but it was... We were so excited and so thrilled with how it went. Um, it was a real pleasure working with um, the team at Leaps and Bounds and the way they put that that event together. Um, so Sean, whose original idea it was to pair us with, with visual artists... Um, you know, when we originally got that idea, we were like, hmm, well, okay, you know, it makes sense, but how will it go? Well, it went, it was fantastic. And it was great to see the way that the artists interacted with each band as well. Mm-hmm. It was different, you know, like, you know, Zond and their artists, that was a very unique thing that happened. Um, what
0: were they painting on?
3: Like, what? Oh, like. Uh, canvas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, well, I mean, the, the artists that we worked with painted on, one was a big canvas and one was a big, big bit of plywood. You know, and um, and you know, it was different. Uh, they got to different stages of completion, but but it was just. I think it was just the the intent of of presenting something like that, like irrespective of the outcome, the intent was there to do something which showed that relationship between you know that kind of visual component and what we did. So yeah, because <laughs> I
0: suppose you, you associate in your music with the art form of dance. Yeah. So the idea of yeah associating it with. Visual art or yeah, painting in this case is quite yeah, it's quite interesting. Yeah,
3: but I I mean, I guess again, when you remove um, uh, like when you remove the human voice as the primary form of connection, it allows space for other other ways to connect with what you're experiencing. So in this case, like yeah, people come to our show and they, some people like trip out and they lose themselves in it. Some people dance. Either way, like, it, it, it prevents a very – sorry, prevents it, – it promotes a very kind of visual experience, so a very kind of cerebral thing that you kind of – when I say visual, like, internally visual, you're kind of conjuring up, like, colour and shape and, you know, layered textures and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So I guess it's – yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of – did I answer your
1: question or did I just go
3: off yeah, on you a tangent? Did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're,
1: speaking, <laughs> we're speaking with, uh, with Matt Watson, the uh, drummer from Taipan Tiger Girls ahead the of their show uh, for free, would you believe it, tonight mm. at the Northcote Social Club. And um, just briefly, I want to ask you about your other solo projects, mm. um, other places. You just put out a fantastic album, Lost in the Sea of Paradise, recently that's got a lot of airplay on Triple R. And I mean, Taipan Tiger Girls, by its nature, as we've spoken about, it's very much improvisational. What mm. was your approach to other places? W- was that kind of more, I guess, considered before you went to, to lay the tracks down in the um, studio?
3: Not... Yes and no. I mean, I guess it's... Like, I think everything that I do probably comes from the same place. It's just left to my own devices. I tend to to uh, want to control things more. So, ultimately, you end up in, in a more kind of arranged... Um, uh, in a mindset where I kind of want to arrange and move sound around more but but ultimately it's still it's it 's within the ballpark of what i what taipan tiger girls is as well it 's just mm. an arranged version of that um obviously like yeah the uh the way that I make the other uh, records for other places um being the sole provider of content, I choose what and how I use. Um, yeah, what I include instrument wise, but ultimately it's still uh, r- rhythms and textures, and the textures come from electronic music instruments. Mm. So um, and you know you'll hear in that as well, like there's there's immense amounts of improvisation within that. It's just that once I've found that that path or that that piece or whatever that I like, that then becomes the the framework for the the work but i guess also probably the thing that 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 um uh, differentiates the two projects too is that i'm you know other places is about songs (laughs) and and there's a melody (laughs) and you know and harmony and stuff like that in there so that's that's where i get to channel that but yeah
1: Mm. yeah and i mean uh so Type and Tiger Girls you're playing tonight at North mm. Social Club the other uh, show you've got coming up looks um, great as well in October October 20th with The Double which is uh, oh, a yeah. band with um, Jim White of course and The Dirty Three yeah. and, and many other bands Lurus White others as well and Emmett Kelly as well who's um, played with Ty Siegel Cairo Gang Bonnie mm. Prince Billy others that sounds like a fantastic that is, night down there
3: yeah and that's with um, Oz, Oz Mutants as mm. well so we like yeah we're stoked to be a part of that bill so I think we're opening um We'll be opening that night uh but yeah we're we wrapped we're, uh, there's not really much i can say about that at the moment other than that <laughs> it's that exciting times. we're really yeah we're, we're stoked to be part of that bill um and obviously tonight is going to be a, a first I, and i should say i'm not sure what we're going to do for that show
2: mm-hmm.
3: but for tonight is we're definitely playing as a as a five piece so we'll get to introduce um bonnie and cat um into the fold so to speak and yeah we're, we're we're working on some bigger ideas that will will come to light uh, over the next month or so but um that'll be for to be announced some um, way down the track for um for some stuff that's happening later in the year. so
1: Great. Keep yeah, our eyes say, and ears peeled. Yes, yes. Tune in. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so Taipan Tiger Girls playing tonight at Northcote Social Club along with Bitumen, Atom and Nullstat. Mm. I hope that's how you pronounce I
3: believe that's correct. That's, I'm sure must we'll be close be anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> But it's a great night down there at Northcote yeah. Social Club. Free entry. And, um, and the great thing about Taipan Tiger Girl's gigs is I guess it's potentially never to be re- repeated. What happens on the night is totally unique and, yeah. and in the moment.
3: And it's, you know, it's based on the... En- whatever energy we bring that night. I mean, obviously, you know, we have a... There's a language we have, so you're not going to get... You're going to know that it's us. We have... There's a certain, like, language that we've kind of created and a dynamic between us, But, but every performance is is entirely different. And we feel it each time as well, that it is very different. So tonight will be different based on whatever's going on for the three of us or the five of us tonight. Um, Yeah, I should say everyone should get down early and see Atom, who will be opening. Mm. So uh, Harry Howard and Ed Preston's um, project that when I saw them just completely blew my mind. So, you know.
1: So they're kicking off. Down yeah there. at yep. eight i think they
3: start at 8 20 so it's definitely worth getting in to see them them uh so atom and bitumen kind of back to back will be a mind-blowing you know fun monday night and then then it'll be us uh followed by nil start Null start closing so and i guess the connection there is in it being more kind of dance orientated mm-hmm. um with us being the kind of Transit, transitory kind of experience. Is <laughs> so
0: your dancing shoes on then? Yeah,
3: yeah. Monday
0: night, why not? What else are
3: you going to do Monday night? Yeah, that's exactly
0: right. right. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, oh, you could watch Q&A. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but we, well,
3: you know, they might screen it if, if you ask me. So they might put oh, it on No, the no
0: people will be really please putting their dancing shoes don't. on <laughs> and they will be heading down to the Northcote Social Club. <laughs> I can't believe I said that. Anyway, that's so right. what popped into my head. It's like, no.
3: Nah. <laughs> uh,
0: so good to have you in, Matt.
3: Yeah. Likewise, uh, thank you for having
1: me in. Absolutely. appreciate yeah. And get down early tonight to the Northcote Social Club. Today,
0: the Prime Minister is meeting again with uh, uh, power companies, this time energy company AGL, hoping to convince AGL to keep the Liddell coal-fired power station in New South Wales open beyond 2022 when it's scheduled to be retired. The concern is that another power station closure will put further pressure on the national power grid, which is already vulnerable due largely to policy failure over more than a decade which has left us vulnerable to blackouts and also led to higher prices. Giles Parkinson is editor of Renew Economy, an online newspaper which uh, very much should be in your inbox if you haven't subscribed already. It's a fantastic uh, daily update. And Giles, thanks for being on Triple R again. Look,
4: thanks for having
0: us. And uh, some people are concerned that the federal government might get involved financially with um, Liddell and coal-fired power to keep it open beyond... The next five years, are you concerned about that, or do you think it's kind of not gonna happen?
4: I think it's the most ridiculous thing I've heard in a long line of ridiculous interventions by the government over the last 10 years. Um, no, it's quite absurd. Um, Liddell is a um, well, it's going to be 50 years old in 2022, and that's when AGL decided it wanted to close it, and that seems like a reasonable time. I mean, it was actually going to close a little bit earlier, but they're probably making so much money out of the market at the moment that they decided to sort of cash in for as long as they could. But really, it's like it's like... Old clunking piece of machinery. It's not really reliable. And it's extraordinary that the coalition government is actually saying, in the name of increased reliability and lower prices, that we should keep this really old coal fired generator keep going for another five years when its impact would probably be the opposite because you can't rely on it when. Um, power is needed, and it's going to be extraordinarily expensive to uh, invest the money to keep it going for another five years. I mean, it's kind of running on rubber bands and band-aids as it is.
0: Yeah, well, that's a concern, but I I, I suppose people are concerned that the government might do what's um, called policy on the run and make some rash decisions here. Do you think, you know, I suppose of the track record of the last 10 years that we might get some kind of more band-aid solutions to this from a policy point of view?
4: Well, that's where we seem to be heading. I mean, we're just sort of thinking we're we're in extraordinary territory at the moment with the policy debate. Um, you know, last week we had two reports by the Australian Energy Market Operator, and look, they're reasonably technical in detail, but they're quite important reports because they talked about the sort of the the challenges in the next five to ten years, and they talked about you know. It basically said we're transitioning towards a different sort of energy system. That's inevitable. Wind and solar are becoming cheaper. More and more people are putting in solar and they're gonna be putting in storage behind the meter. That's in their households and businesses. So we have to sort of change the way that the market's operated and think about this completely differently. Yet all the politics seems to be just sort of going towards sort of stepping even further into the past and it's like it's sort of, it's, it, it's completely bizarre and I really don't understand it.
1: And Yeah, I want to uh, ask about, about that, Giles, because um, I mean is c- can we I guess account for the Turnbull government's push here to keep the deal open for another five years um, because of their kind of um, obligations or allegiances to the coal industry? Is it pressure from the nationals who and we've just heard have voted to end renewable subsidies? How do we account for this when um, kind of evidence points Um, in the direction of not keeping a power station such as Liddell open for longer than it should be?
4: Well, I I struggle to um, account for it. And look, just picking up on that last point, um, we we read a lot in the media about how these AEMA reports actually recommended that Liddell be kept open for another five years. It did absolutely nothing of the sort. It sort of said, look, that could be an option, but really what we're looking for is dispatchable... Uh, and flexible generation. Um, But those things are talking about anything but a really old clunky coal generator. As for why they're pushing this way, look, I'm kind of at a loss to understand at the moment. Look, I think there's two things happening here. One is that um, there's a lot of ideology involved. Two, there's a lot of vested interests involved. Um, and that's the pressure from the coal industry, um, it was a quite an extraordinary decision by the Nationals to sort of vote for no more renewable energy um, support, so what they seem to want is a coal energy target rather than a clean energy target. And extraordinary, well, because Barnaby Joyce and uh, Matt Canavan, the sort of leader and the deputy or the second in command of the nationals, are actually living in electorates where there is an awful lot of solar and wind energy being installed. And look, um, kind of, I really don't understand it. Barnaby was rattling on last week about how what happens if a light goes out and gets stuck in the lift, lift and you need to go to the toilet and it's all going to be renewable's fault. But really, the reality is the biggest threat to um, our secu- uh, um, energy supplies over the coming summer and the following summers, and this is made absolutely clear in the AEMA report, is the risk of a big generator, a big old clunky machine, actually switching off and failing in the heat. And we saw that happen on numerous occasions last year. We saw that in South Australia, we saw it in New South Wales, and we even saw a few incidents in uh, Queensland.
0: We're speaking with Giles Parkinson, he's a editor of Renew Economy and it's interesting when you do look at the, the AEMO report, uh, they, uh, Audrey Zibelman, who's the CEO, uses words like, we're indifferent to the sources of energy, we want balance and that's what they're trying to manage, that's what they need is to, to balance this network and balance the grid. And, uh, I mean, she seems to be very clear and working really hard to be clear but it it is being spun in different ways depending on who's doing the, the writing up of the the report i wonder um you know it also happened with the finkel report and i wonder if her message will come out at the end of the day and be clear for consumers do you think or do you think there's just too much noise people won't really understand what what's trying to be be achieved by by the energy market operator
4: Look, I think most consumers instinctively understand what needs to happen, that we are shifting towards renewables and we are shifting towards um, smart technology. I just think there is just such a white noise out there, though, about the different positions from people. I'm not too sure whether Audrey Ziegenman is actually sort of cutting through. We're not... I think she's cutting through, but I just don't think enough people get to hear her. I mean, I mean she's an amazing person and fantastic to listen to. She's got a cl- very clear vision about where this energy market should be taken, and not because of ideological reasons or anything like that, just simply because you know, she has experience in the U.S. of transforming energy grids um, and making them more secure in the modern age when we've got all these new technologies coming in. Um, you know, I think communication about these issues is a real problem. I mean, one of the things that um, the AIMO report is forced to report on is, are these reliability standards and these measures called unserved energy, and they're very, very confusing. And you know everyone's been saying, oh, there's risk of blackouts, there's risk of blackouts because of these various graphs that are in the AEMO report, but if you actually look at them carefully, the risks of unserved energy, in other words, you know the risk for some people to go without power for a couple of hours a year, is really not that great. Um, and if it does happen, barring an extreme event like we saw in South Australia last year it would happen to a small number of people for a very short period of time and Australia has the highest reliability standards in in the world I mean it's 99.998% which basically means on average the grid operator is required to keep the power supply going for all but 8 minutes of the year and (laughs) so it's um, it's an extraordinary thing really And, and, and that's and because of that reliability standard, it's one of the reasons why we're paying these outrageously high prices for electricity because they've, built, they've kind of oversized this grid. You know, it's like building a Sydney Harbour Bridge, which is 25 lanes wide, so there's no risk of any uh, traffic jam at peak hour. That's kind of what they've done with the electricity grid, and we're paying through the nose for it.
1: Mm. And as Carly mentioned at the beginning, Prime Minister Turnbull is meeting with the Chief Executive of AGL today and I mean AGL has been very vocal about saying it wants to get out of coal and invest in renewables and I mean this isn't really, you know, I think we can assume not an altruistic position, this is very much a a business decision they're making. Do you think anything kind of meaningful or anything will change coming out of Turnbull's um, meeting with the AGL Chief today?
4: Well, who knows? I mean, it looks it's obvious that the coalition is trying to make some threats to them because they're, um, they're now sort of saying that the um, various uh, pricing um, manipulation in the um, wholesale markets is going to be investigated. And it's been well known that the big energy players have such market power over the prices. And that's another reason why they're paying through the nose for electricity is that they're artificially inflating those prices because they have the market power to do so. Um, look, one thing I'd just like to say about AGL, they say that they want to get out of coal. By, um, but remember, they only actually bought into coal three years ago. Liddell and the Bayswater coal um, generators were only bought in 2014, and so it wants to get out, and, out of coal in 2022, um, and then Bayswater about 15 years later, and uh, Royang in 2048. So it's not, as though it's, it's not as though it's rushing to the exit to get out of coal. Um, it bought the coal generators because it figured that it was going to make a lot of money out of it and it's going to make a lot of money out of it. At the same time, it does recognise that there is a transition happening, that we do have have to invest in renewables and storage and it's getting very excited about that. And it also recognises that to spend the money to keep Liddell open, it's already 50 years old, or it's gonna be 50 years old in 2022, is probably gonna cost between half a billion and a billion dollars. And you're really not gonna find anyone capable, prepared to do that. Plus, the rehabilitation cost of the whole project, which would be another half billion um, dollars, no one's going to do that without um, government subsidy. So, I'm not really too sure what the government's doing here. Um, it's playing politics, it's appealing to the base notions of the party base, I guess. I, I, I really don't understand it, but um, it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of it.
0: Yeah, it will be. And I, I think, I mean, you run another um, news site which is One Step Off the Grid, and I wonder whether ultimately consumers will start making you know choices that perhaps are, are, are not directly in their financial interest but to kind of throw the hands up and look to the technology and move off I mean you're seeing, you're seeing people do that already do you think that will catch on for more consumers that they'll actually just move off the grid even if they have good access to it?
4: Oh, absolutely. And look, the, um, the, the networks from the CSIRO did this fantastic report um, late last year. It came out. It actually talked about how the energy grid can actually transition to be completely decarbonised, effectively 100% renewable within a couple of decades. And what they said was that we've got to get on with this. And the, the, the risk that they identified was that exactly as you said, that households, and businesses will soon realize that they can get much cheaper electricity from solar energy. So those that can uh, install solar on the rooftops, they really should because there's going to be a big discount to their, their bills now. And we're also seeing the cost of battery storage come down. So some people might add a little bit of battery storage to put some of that solar in the box and keep it for the evening. And then over a few years' time, this is what the networks pointed out, that within, say, five or ten years, the cost of actually using solar and storage and going completely off the grid will actually make economic sense for individuals and their argument was for price that we actually to get going and reform this energy market because if not then we're not going to be able to stop all these households from making an economic decision not just a uh, sort of an FU decision but an economic decision to sort of say well look bugger this, we're going to go off the grid because yeah. you're charging us way too
0: much. And, and then the long-term public good might not be served because those that can't afford to go off can't, those that are renting can't necessarily get off either. So you've got fewer customers paying more um, on the grid. And yeah, so it's, it's a kind of a mess. Let's. There's well, a long way between here and now, here and there.
4: Yeah, look, that's right. Look, I just want to say one thing, though, about this whole idea about you know, trying to demonise solar households because they're using less energy or they're going to go off the grid and therefore that increases the cost to the rest of the community. Yes, under the current market rules, that's the case because of the networks who have clearly gold plated in their investments. Demand that they've got a legal right to get all their money back. Well, I'm just wondering whether they really should have a legal right to get their money back because clearly they have overinvested. Why should they get their money back um, and demand higher fees? I mean, it's it, it's like it's, it's sort of Telstra sort of saying, oh well, no one's using landlines anymore. So people who are using landlines have got to pay five dollars a call. I mean, that's ridiculous. You can't do that, and, and no other industry has gotten away with that. And I don't see why they should get away with it with the networks.
0: Giles, thanks so much for talking with us on Triple
4: R.